Welcome to Well I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. I can honestly say that every one of my guests has highlighted something new about the condition and how it affects us all, about myself, about life and what's important in it. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum Kay lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Her diagnosis came about in the wake of a terrible crisis. And when it did, my family and I knew nothing about the condition. Looking back, I think we'd been in denial about what might be wrong with mum. We were worried, frightened and overwhelmed. So we buried our heads in the sand for far too long, a scenario which is sadly all too common. Now though, through my writing and campaigning, I know so much more about this cruel condition. It is cruel and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But I now know that it is possible to live a decent, if changed, life with dementia. I know it's down to society, to all of us, to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled and satisfying lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, well I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. Dementia teaches you this too. My guest today has achieved so much in his long and successful career that it's difficult to know where to start. A highly regarded actor whose family come from the East End of London, he's also a presenter, writer, author, historian, political activist and charity ambassador, often taking on roles that combine his many talents and earning himself a knighthood in the process. Not bad for a man best known for playing a witless fool for ever coming up with cunning plans doomed to failure. He caught my eye recently as the star of a short film to raise awareness of dementia written by the brilliant cartoonist Tony Husband, who's appeared on my podcast twice. Entitled Joe's Journey, the film cleverly encapsulates the confusion and fear that engulf not just Joe, who has the condition, but his loved ones, and even, to a lesser extent, the kindly, puzzled strangers he encounters. For just like Tony Husband, today's guest has personal knowledge of what he calls the manifold horrors of dementia, as first his dad and then his mum succumbed to Alzheimer's. He is Sir Tony Robinson, aka Baldrick, the hapless servant of Lord Blackadder. The role catapulted him to fame. Poignantly, even as Robinson was enjoying rising success, his father's dementia was making itself more and more apparent. Just a few years after his dad's death, his mum, Phyllis, developed Alzheimer's and when the condition worsened, she moved into a care home where she lived for a further eight years. Shortly before she died, Robinson made a BBC documentary, Me and My Mum, exploring the issues around dementia and care homes. He says the public's reaction was extraordinary. Carers and people with dementia wrote him heartfelt, handwritten letters describing their own appalling situations. He went on to become an Alzheimer's Society ambassador, believing that though we can do little on our own, together we can move mountains, a sentiment with which I completely agree. Tony Robinson has been an outspoken critic of the inhumane way in which care home residents were abandoned at the beginning of the COVID pandemic and says that though he still misses his parents, his dad died in 1989, his mum in 2005, he's thankful that they weren't alive to endure the ordeal confronted 
by many of society's most defenceless members. He cites the statistic that there were in excess of 5,000 more dementia deaths than usual in the first four months of lockdown and says that though he understands the need to protect vulnerable people living in care homes, there should have been more of a balance so that the only way a parent could see their child didn't have to be through plate glass like an animal in the zoo. Sometimes, he says, the best medicine is the chance to hold the hand of the person we love. So, Sir Tony Robinson, it's my very great privilege to welcome you to Well, I Know Now. Nice to talk to you. So first, could you tell us about how you came to star in Joe's journey? I must say your portrayal was brilliant of somebody with dementia and really resonated with me and brought back memories of my own mum's dementia. Tony, uh, husband, is actually a great friend of John Lloyd, who produced Black Adder, mm. and the two of them were just nattering away about the fact that uh, Tony wanted to make this little film, and he said, "I would really like Tony Robinson," and John said, "Well, I'll give him the ring," and he did, and uh, I read the book on which the film is uh, based, and. Apart from all the other emotions that I felt, I thought, as someone who has seen Alzheimer's from the outside for about 20 years, as an actor, this gives me the opportunity to explore it, as it were, from the inside. Um, and it was just a, a, a wonderful gift, really, for me to be able to play that part. And it's a beautiful little film. It is. It's very clear, isn't it? And concise and yes, without, yes. It, it doesn't sort of emote all over the place. It just does it as it is. I thought it was yes, extremely yes. powerful for that reason. Yeah, so you drew on both your parents, sort of, did you, watching them? And you got that look in the eye, I thought, really well. Thank you. Um, it's a look that I've become very familiar with over the last 20 years, I guess, because I've been involved with so many people who've got dementia and, of course, very close up and personal with my mum and dad. And I felt I knew what that look meant as an actor and tried my best to reproduce it. What do you think it does mean when you see it for, for the person with mm. dementia? None of us really know, do we? But what do you think is going no. on in their head? I think when you have dementia, you're constantly trying to work out this new world in which you find yourself. Mm. And you lose a lot of confidence and there is a kind of working level of fear that so many people with dementia mm. have mm. because everything just keeps slipping away from them all the time. And yet there's also that kind of stoicism of I'm going to sort this bloody thing out. Mm. And it's that kind of combination, that permanent struggle that I think is is so poignant. Mm. And, it, and it's why one of the key things I think about dementia is creating an environment and personalities around the person with dementia to support them, to give them ease so that they can work out where they are and who they are and who the other person is without panicking. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And this sense of um, trying to constantly outwit dementia, or I know people yes. with dementia have even given it a sort of personality you know, the monster or something. And they, yeah. I, I don't know, have you encountered Wendy Mitchell, who has uh, dementia? Who she is. Wendy Mitchell has dementia, was diagnosed at 58, and she's written incredibly a best selling memoir called Somebody I Used to Know. Oh, yes, yes, I do. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she, she describes how she 
types every day. She can still type very well and express herself very well. Then she didn't do it. She gave herself two weeks off. And when she went back to her laptop, she'd completely forgotten what to do. And it was only the quick thinking of a friend on the other end because she sort of did a load of gobbledygook and pressed the envelope thing for an email. And the friend, as you're sort of explaining there, as you're saying, if people support, had the, the foresight and the intelligence to sort of email back, Wendy, that's gobbledygook try again, when he tried again, more gobbledygook, and then she said, follow me, you know, copy what I type, copy the yeah. shapes. And it came back to Wendy, but Wendy says it was terrifying, absolutely and terrifying. Yes, can you imagine there's that one thing that you can still hold on yeah. to and you lose that said. as well? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, what did your mum and then your dad, did they, was it something they held on to? Music is often something that people hold on to. My dad has always been musical. He did hold on to that. He also held on to his relationship with his grandchildren, my, my children. He could be terrifying, my dad. He was only tiny. He was littler than me. And, uh, but he'd always had the potential for quite a fierce anger. Mm. And in his fear, that anger could just explode. And yet, whenever my kids were around, he was just charming and funny and very silly. How interesting. And I remember once my son, Luke, and he were looking out of the window at the car. My dad had always loved his cars. Mm. And my dad said, do you know what the registration number of my car is, Luke? And he said, no. He said, it's AAA, 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 AAA. And my son, Luke, said, well, it must be very hard for people to overtake you, Granddad. You've got such a long registration plate. <laughs> and and my dad and he just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. Yeah. It was like this strange thing of of incorporating the lostness that my yeah. dad was feeling with a joke, yeah. with a relationship with my grandson. I was just, I, it was one of the most touching moments of my life, just observing that. Yeah, yeah. I think there's often a bond, isn't there, between the very young, I don't know how old your son was at the time. Yeah, um, seven or eight. Yeah, exactly. And, and people with dementia, because they've got the same sort of innocence. And children just don't judge, do they? Inst- no. Instead of saying, well, there couldn't have been a number plate, he just joins in the thing really and yeah, and, and yeah, goes yeah. with the wit of it all and um yeah yeah you see that a lot this intergenerational stuff which I think is very good there was another very poignant moment you had with your dad because as I said in the intro it was rather sad that as as your career was exploding with with Baldrick it, mm. that was the same time as your dad's dementia was really beginning to manifest itself but I don't know if you'd like to explain, but you were on the cover of the Radio Times and you felt you'd made it. You were there, you know, with um, Blackadder. Yeah, it, it was my very last week. Uh, oh, sorry, I mean, it was my dad's very last week. We didn't realise that at the time. He, he was just about to die. He had a heart attack and uh, and died. Um, but at the beginning of that week, I got the mock-up of the Radio Times. And, and at that time, being on the cover of the Radio Times was just about mm. the, the best thing that mm. an actor could ever receive. What mm. a presence. And it was, uh, it was me and Rowan in, uh, in Blackadder Goes Forth. And I knew that my dad would recognize what an accolade that was Mm. and I just showed him the mock-up and I don't think he said anything at all he just Mm. kept looking at it and then he patted my hand a number of times and then he lost interest and went on to something else Mm. but it was just so lovely and then at the end of that week he died and and my mum and I were with him it wasn't that dramatic it was a series of tiny little heart attacks that he had in bed Mm. and he kept going ow ow 
Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. And then he just slowly faded. And at the moment of his death, that tortured face that he had for so long relaxed and he became my dad again. Mm, mm, mm. And that too was a, a, a lovely moment. Exactly the same with my mum. I remember writing about it and saying she was more my mum. I missed her actual passing by a couple of minutes, which was really sad. Yeah. I, think, I think it's often the way, but I did hold her in my arms, you know, and, and then that moment when I held her, she was much more my mum than she had been for about, well, about eight years, about the same as, you know, yeah. for you, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. With both my parents, it's very odd. I didn't mourn them very much after their death mm. because I'd been mourning them both for the previous five or six years in a way it sounds a dreadful thing to say but I know a lot of people a lot of carers feel the same yeah. in a way it was a bit of a relief oh yeah and it was as though in many ways it was a, quite a present that they had given me in their death it it took away all that anxiety and that fear it took away that exhaustion mm. both the intellectual and emotional exhaustion i've been feeling for so long mm. um mm. and it was like they both died very gently and mm. they had given me back my own life in, in yeah. their death yeah i completely know what you mean because your own life does become sort of skewed out of its normal way, doesn't it? Because you, yes, it does, yeah. you do find yourself being this carer, even if it's from afar and not a sort of hands-on 24-7 carer, but still your whole life suddenly skews out of its normal context. I found that, yeah. And the, the other thing that I think that it's really nice to get rid of when you you finally lose your loved one is the guilt that you've been carrying around I was going to come on to that, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I mean... Dear, oh dear, oh dear. I mean, it was like every encounter that I had with my dad, I felt I hadn't done well enough. Yeah. And had done badly and had let my mum down. And I know that every, everybody who cares for someone with dementia feels the same. Yeah. But I didn't know that then. It was my, my guilty secret was that I was always feeling so guilty. Absolutely. I mean, that's why I called the podcast Well I Know Now, because yeah. so many people say that, you know, I wish I'd kind of known them because... I thought I was the only person, and yeah, it's very, it's very interesting that, isn't it? And this guilt is just—I um, don't really know why we feel it so strongly. I suppose it's because you, you keep telling yourself, even if you do know, actually, Tony, I think you do feel guilty because you keep telling yourself, it's not the person, you know, it's not my mum, it, it's the illness. But as yeah. somebody, you know, as a carer, wife said to me. It's all very well, but at sort of 3 a.m. in the morning when you're both cowering under the bed because your husband thinks whatever it is, you know, he thinks we're being invaded yeah. by little green animals or something, you can't really think like that. <laughs> you know, you're no. just absolutely sleep-deprived beyond belief, and you do get angry. I think one of the problems, and, and this is beginning to ease a little bit, although not nearly enough, is that we don't understand what an effective caring procedure is in most situations. We don't know how to deal with it. So we just rely on kind of instinct and ways we've dealt with things in the past. And most of the time, it's not really great what we're doing, but we don't know what else to do. And it's going to take a long time, isn't it, for us to be able to, as a species, to learn how to deal with Alzheimer's in a much more mature way. And 
It's really rather like COVID, isn't it? We've just been blundering around in the dark. We yeah. blame the government and say they're blundering about yeah. in the dark. But we've all been blundering around in the dark, trying to do our best. And probably most of looking back in five or six years' time, the way we dealt with COVID, people, it'll, it'll be laughable, the mistakes that we all made. Quite, quite, because we uh, knew no better sort of thing. Because we know no better, yeah. 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 You, just, you just work terribly hard at doing what you think might be right. And then when it obviously isn't, you feel doubly guilty. And try something else. That's probably not right. Yeah, yeah. I um, do. You, have you ever come across admiral nurses, specialist dementia nurses? Yes, I have. Yep, yep, yep. They're very interesting to watch, and I've interviewed a lot of them over the course of the last few years, and they're extraordinary people. And they do understand how to deal with that recalcitrant person with dementia who just really doesn't want to have their hair washed or really doesn't want to put their yeah. pajamas on or have the shower, and. It's in a number of different ways. It can be by playing music that just calms them down. And I think they would probably say, I mean, I might get this all wrong now, but sort of that uh, a lot of the time, and you've referenced this a bit, a lot of the time the way the person with dementia reacts is down to fear. So if they start getting very stroppy about something as we might see it, it's actually because they're terrified and they don't see the shower as the shower. They'll see it as some sort of raging I don't know, something, but they're frightened. And so when they're sort of really pushing back and really quite strongly physically resisting it, it will be that. And so you just need to almost try and enter their world, which obviously is extremely difficult, but sort of go with them and also just bring down that level of huge anxiety and fear that's going on inside them. And when you see it in action, it's quite extraordinary, actually, how they can bring that person back down from that high level of... Yeah, no, it's it's very, very interesting. I know you say, actually, that um, you do feel that in today's society, people with dementia, but more generally the elderly, have actually been marginalised and forgotten, and you say have suffered for far too long. I don't know if you'd like to say something about that, Tony. Yes, I do feel that very strongly. I think in 100 years' time, assuming that our species is still around, Mm. I think we'll look back on the way that, how society in 2021 treat the elderly. We'll look back on it in the same way that people look back on child labour or women not having the vote, vote. Mm. you know, all those mm. those big things. How could we possibly mm. have treated the elderly in, in the way that we have been? I think that's particularly true about the way our resources are divided up as a society. The massive crisis that there is in care homes at the moment. Just mm. this morning, I read about one that gave people eight hours' notice mm, mm. that the home was ab- about to close and because they just couldn't keep it open, because there just weren't any staff there at all. Mm, and mm. we've all known, all of us who've been involved in uh, issues around the elderly have been saying for 20 years, there is a huge crisis here because you won't pay carers properly, professional Absolutely. carers properly. Absolutely. It seems to me, I can remember, I think it was in the 1970s, when we as a society suddenly realised how badly off teachers were and we said Mm. look these are the people who every day look after our children and they're virtually in poverty and we're not getting the best people even if we get the best people Mm. we can't afford to continue training them etc 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 and within two or three years that that whole profession was turned around and the same thing happened with nurses of course Mm. with with firefighters uh, with coppers most areas of public life we've had to recognize how important these people are. And we had 
absolutely failed to do that as far as care workers are concerned. You know, I, I know that a lot of these things can't be reduced to money, and to try and do that is just absurd. But there, there are some things which we pretty well damn sure know can be changed with money, and the wages and training and the environment that uh, care workers live in needs to come to be transformed radically. And that's a political issue, and that's about government doing that. And we've seen over the last couple of years that when a big threat comes to the country, it is possible, regardless mm, of your mm, politics, mm. to to find that money. Mm. And uh, that money is findable. Mm, mm. You know, we are still one of the richest countries in the world, treating our elderly abysmally. Couldn't agree more. And uh, I think as well, though, it is this training, isn't it? It's the fact that there's no yeah. career structure. I don't know if yeah, you absolutely. I don't know if you saw Ed Ball's documentary, did you, Inside the Care Crisis? No. Ed Ball's went into a um, care home for, I can't remember if it's a week or two weeks, and he meets there. Actually, interesting, just a little aside, Ed Balls is the most surprisingly natural carer. I just was... <laughs> 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 um, but uh, he meets... Ca- I think he was called Cameron, a very, very young carer who's a complete natural. Very, very good. But actually, he's using this caring role as a stepping stone to go into the NHS. He wants to be rapid response or something. But anyway, because I know you feel that the, that the NHS and uh, social care should be far more integrated... Uh, oh, and yes. I completely agree, because then you, you might get a better career structure. You know, there is a career structure in the NHS, mm. but there's just no career structure properly, it seems to me, in the social care sector. So, A, there's not the money, and B, there doesn't seem to be any way that anybody's going to rise up to get a, a higher rated role so that they do earn more money. It's a skizzy job. Mm. And I say that, I'm I'm using that outrageous term, I hope fairly wisely, in that what I mean is precisely what you've just said. It's a job in which you're trapped into a kind of poverty. You know, often people who aren't getting paid as much as they might elsewhere will stay in that job because they've got aspirations. They Mm. know that Mm. within that environment, they can do better. And it gives them a real buzz in Mm. in trying to, Mm. you know, pass the exams or Mm. or, or do things better or learn more. Acting's a bit like that, isn't it? I mean, actors famously say you start off on very little, but... Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's just appalling, you know. The people that we love most who are maybe, let's say, 20 years older than us, mm. we're going to allow them to be looked after by people who have no incentive other than their human love mm. to look after that person. Mm. It's extraordinary, isn't it, actually? I wrote a thunder yeah. column about it, actually, when I said that what we do is we sort of outsource the care of our elderly, which is fine. If that's our society, you know, that's a rather sort of brutal way of putting it, but because we do put people in care homes. And then and then we leave them to people who aren't trained properly. And we pay yeah. people absolutely scandalous salaries and then we moan about the carers <laughs> yeah and uh, we moan about the quality of the care it's just re- exactly. it's absurd yeah mm. yeah mm. so i know you have a lot of respect for carers i've, I've read a about what you said and i think um mm. so that the documentary you did me and my mum which was very good because it was not long before your mum died was it but presumably no. you went into she, all she, this. she died while i was making it she died at, the, the last day of the film is the day that she died we just clearly didn't know that when we started making it sorry what was your question well I, that I was difficult tony though i mean I, sorry i didn't realize that because it was a while ago yeah. wasn't it in 2006 yes, it, was. it came out but i was asking you about you know how you must have explored these issues i believe that's sort of why you did it really but it was a very well, i hate it because people are always saying things are brave and courageous and what have you but yeah. actually 
it was quite you know exposing thing to do i mean it's very it intimate and, I, and and as you say i mean you can't have known she was going to die but golly i i hmm. i had written an article in the daily mail about my experience of care for alzheimer's patients at the time when my mum was still in the care home and an independent company and channel four came to me and said, would you make a documentary on this? And we agreed that the best way of doing it was to make it very personal about my mum. But that's difficult on a whole number of levels because you can only do that honourably if you know that the person with dementia really wants to do it. Yeah, I was thinking that. But when they got to me, how do you ask? Hard, it was hard to get my mum to concentrate on that. Mm. <laughs> Listen, what I'm going to tell you now is really important. <laughs> it is more important than that trifle you've got your finger in. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I talked at length with the, I think she was still called the matron of the, of the care home, at, uh, and we agreed that we would do it together. And so I said to her, Mum, I know you love acting, because she has been an amateur actress all her life. I know you love acting. Well, I'm going to be making a film, and I would like to make it about you, so you would be the star of it, but it would be about you and the illness you've got, the dementia. How would you feel? Would you be all right about being in that film? And she said, oh, yes, and then she went, went back to the trifle. <laughs> uh, and then, like, 20 minutes later, had no memory of it at all. Yeah. But then when she went to lunch, I think I'd gone for a wee or something, but I came back and sat down opposite her. Hmm. And she said, when's it going to happen then? And I said, hmm. when's what going to happen, Mum? She said, that nice thing. Mm. And it was at that moment that I knew, you know, she mm. logged it mm. um, in her file of nice things. Mm. It was obviously mm. something mm. that we weren't going to be able to do. And she did. She absolutely loved it. And my kids were in it as well. Oh, brilliant. It was just such fun for her. And even though she was continually losing her memory mm. while we were doing it, it was like she was Betty Davis. Oh, really? <laughs> she, was, she was wonderful. She just she sailed her way through it smiling regally at everybody yeah. to do with the show, even if she had no idea who they were or even what she was doing. That's so interesting, actually, Tony, because Admiral nurses and experts in dementia will tell you yeah. that, and even Wendy Mitchell has told me, she can't remember who I am, but she knows I'm nice. Yeah. The emotions remain, which yes. is sort of what your mum was saying. You know, when's that yeah. nice thing going to happen? They yeah. know that somebody's nice or something's nice and that's all that matters in a way <laughs> i think that one of the big pluses for me with both my parents was that they never forgot that i was their nice person and i think it's such a tragedy i mean it was my, my mum used to flirt outrageously with with luke my grandson <laughs> which, which, when you think about it it's pretty damned inappropriate, inappropriate. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it was wonderful it was yeah. wonderful because she knew that he was that mm. he was lovely mm. and she always felt safe with him and, mm. and, and, mm. Around mm. with him and, mm. and all that when you hear about people who who've actually they go into the care home week after week and their loved one doesn't know who they are or treats them with contempt or is copped off with somebody else in the care mm, home. Mm, how how awful mm. is that? I know. Yeah. It's, it is a very cruel, cruel... Did your parents both sort of know you right up to the end then? Yeah. A lot of the time, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah you were. And, even if, if, and even if they didn't know who I was, they knew I was safe. Oh, you were lucky, actually, then, I'd say. Yeah. Just give a little, because we haven't really sort of, I don't know if it's too sore an issue for you or too sensitive and painful, but c- could you just explain how each time, because you were unlucky in that both your parents got Alzheimer's, Ooh. one after the other, but as I read it when I was researching you, that was in quite a different way each time. I don't know if you just want to explain about how your your dad's Alzheimer's well, manifested itself and... As far as my dad was concerned, and this touches on something which you mentioned very early on, my dad started to say to me, I'm feeling more depressed than I used to, and I can't concentrate as much as I used to. And I keep making mistakes with my maths, which is my dad always had always prided himself mm. with his, his mental arithmetic. And, and I did that thing because I didn't know any better of saying, oh, don't worry, Dad, it's just a temporary thing. Everything's going to be fine. La, 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 for a couple of years without listening to him. Mm. I really, you know, in retrospect, I just made nice noises because nice noises are a good way of chasing bad things away. Do you think, yeah, exactly. I was about to ask you, was it a bit like us then? Do you think really you kind of knew but didn't want to know? Or did you just not realise I think it was more, there might have been a threat on the horizon, Mm. but if there was a threat on the horizon, I couldn't see it yet, and a nice noise might make it go away. Did you have siblings? No. No. I think probably there's always been that terror Mm. uh, for me, which is, if my mum and dad get ill, Mm. I'm going to be the one who has to make Mm. the decisions. Mm. Mm. So, so sorry, I interrupted you there. Your dad was forgetting his maths, which was... Odd. Horrible point. Yeah, yeah. And then he just slipped further and further into it. And I know, oh, I remember what happened. My mum rang me at about two o'clock in the morning. And she was, she was the sort of person who goes to bed at 10 at night. She mm. rang me at two o'clock in the morning and said, I'm having a terrible time with, with dad. He came down into the kitchen. He insisted that I come down too. And he says, that all the handles of all the cups must face northeast. And she burst into tears and said, I mm. don't know where northeast is. Oh, God, sweet. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah. And I I was on the other side of London, mm. and I didn't go over to see them. I, it was, well, you know, guilt, 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 guilt. I didn't go over because I think, I think she got the doctor around mm, and, mm. and and gave a tranquilizer, and I'd I'd worked my way through about three quarters of a bottle of wine that mm, evening, mm, so mm. I was I just didn't think it was a good idea, mm, mm. but I in a way I think it was it was an awful excuse not to have to face up to it. Oh, it's all right. He's been tranquilized. Was that the first sort of sign that something was <laughs> it, really odd? It was, it was the first sign that something really dramatic was happening. Oh, don't beat yourself up about it because I mean, what could you have done really? Well, I could have been there for my mum, is mm. what I could have done about it, yeah. But uh, as I say, uh, it was neutralised by whatever it was the doctor gave him. So sure. I think I probably stayed on the phone until that had been yeah. administered. Yeah, and, and as you said, a bit like COVID, you were trying to do what you were trying to do, weren't you? You were doing your best. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, you saying about touching on painful things. I mean, even telling you that now, I still mm. replay that mm. guilt just as we all do. I'm sure if I pressed you, you would yeah. tell me 20 oh, times what you oh, felt God. dreadfully oh, guilty. Yeah, don't, don't worry, I shouted at my mum. Um, <laughs> because my 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 mum my and dad were both very, very ill at the same time. Yeah. But my dad wasn't dementia, his was physical. So mum's yeah. strange behaviour because of her dementia was putting my dad at risk. I mean, even the doctor said that. Yeah. And so I was getting very... Frustrated, mum had always been this strong character, and it was like, why don't you see that what you're doing is 
like killing that. Yeah. You know, he had a heart yeah, condition. Yeah, 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 and so yeah. I was sort of almost, well, I was shouting at her and, you know, imagine the guilt of that when actually the poor oh, woman just, yeah, absolutely. didn't know what the heck was going on. So that's dementia, oh, well, yeah, isn't it? We're, we're, yeah, yeah we're, we're halfway through the question, actually, aren't we? Which, which <laughs> was, my mum my, my and dad experienced it in very different ways. And that was as far as my dad was concerned. And then after that, really, he went downhill very quickly and, mm. and his confusion. As far as my mum was concerned, this is after my dad had died, and three or four years after he died, she went into hospital to have a varicose veins done and something went radically wrong with the way the operation was conducted. Anesthetic or something. Uh, yeah, it was the anaesthetic. And she'd been a bit dotty, but suddenly she got dementia. In those days, everybody had Alzheimer's disease who was confused. That's all you knew. There was no proper diagnosis. Absolutely. Same with my mum, yeah. Or worse, they were just a bit gargoyle, people used to say. Yeah. It's odd for me. I'm two years short of how old my dad was when mm. he first mm. got dementia. Mm. Both my parents had dementia. Now, we know that it's unlikely that there is any genetic reason mm, why I mm. should be more likely to have it than anybody else. Nevertheless, any time I can't remember anybody's name mm. or can't remember mm. a thing, mm. that slight terror courses through me because mm. of... Uh, you know, I know. You do think, don't you? If it <laughs> you happens do. to both your parents, of course it's going yeah, to happen. Yeah, yeah, you do, you do. But we all forget things, Tony. We all forget things. There was something else very sweet that I was just going to tease out of you that you said, actually, which was because you'd been through it once with your dad and then your mum got it, you said something. I'm probably going to get this slightly wrong, but I think it was that by the time it happened with your mum, you, you did understand it more. You were more patient and more tolerant. And you thought that was the final present that your dad gave to your mum, which I thought was so... Lovely, actually. I think it's absolutely true. But I think it's true of any crisis, isn't it? Uh, yesterday, Lewis Hamilton mm. won a fantastic mm. uh, Formula One race when he'd been crashed into and bashed about and everything. And I was thinking to myself, if someone shunted into the back of my car, I would go into a state of complete... <laughs> but, but you're not Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, complete panic. But for Lewis Hamilton, because it's happened to him so many times, <laughs> it's just a thing he has to deal with. And yeah. uh, on a micro level, that's really what happened when my mum got dementia. I'd be been down that path once i knew that when everything went tits up as it would mm. do five times a week that is just what happens and the way i'm feeling now will end and the way my mum is feeling now will end and just to kind of know that mm. rather than be tipped into the crisis with complete ignorance does actually change your attitude towards it enormously i mean like you were saying about the admiral nurses mm. when you've dealt with someone with dementia an awful lot of times and indeed when you have that a slightly more objective vision of that person because you're not so emotionally involved with them I think it does help the way you're able to treat them yeah still it's a, it's a very good way to to look at it because you could have looked at it like crikey you know um this is a double whammy you know you... oh I'm sure I did I'm sure I dropped to my knees and cursed God but, <laughs> <laughs> but some of the time at least I'm, yeah I, yeah I, I think, that, I think that also time. goes to the thing you said about the fact that you know together we can move mountains and sort of mm. on our own you know by talking about things that can be quite painful for you and for me because we've been through it even people who haven't been through it before like you did at least they know that they're not alone you know that they know that their yeah. feeling of guilt is not 
because a lot of people do think they are the only people who are struggling. They are the That's only right, people yeah. who aren't getting it right. And actually, none of us are getting it right. And there's tremendous... I hadn't realised, actually, how much comfort there is in that. I know that there is absolutely nothing that I can do about curing, in inverted commas, mm, Alzheimer's. Mm, mm. But what I can do in a tiny way is try and make things a little bit better mm. for people who care for people with dementia. Mm. Even if it's just by saying, you know how you feel? We all feel like that, which is actually quite funny. The other thing that uh, we need to recognise, I think, and uh, we talked about what needs to be done for professional carers. Mm. But the fact is there are tens of thousands of people in our society who are sacrificing their lives for a loved one oh in order God. to look after mm, them mm. With, with dementia. Mm. And really, we give them virtually no support at all. That's not just financial, although obviously there is a financial element in that. But surely there must be better ways of giving those people support, giving them time off mm. apart from anything else, mm. giving them respect, and giving them more information. Mm. I find it st amazing, flabbergasting that... Still, people will say to me, still today, you know, when they go with their husband or wife or whoever it is, and they're given the diagnosis of Alzheimer's or some form of dementia, that's it, really. Yeah. You still, after all this, that's sort of <laughs> yes. like, okay, now go and get your affairs in order. Or <laughs> yes. it's amazing. And very early on in my involvement with all this, uh, a man with dementia came up with a brilliant idea which was, yeah, we definitely needed more support at that point of diagnosis when you really shocked, you know, and, and he said, wouldn't it be great if, if they just sort of said, might be in a doctor's surgery or whatever, but we got somebody here lined up because we knew you were going to get the diagnosis, which they would. They would know yeah. they were going to get the diagnosis. Um, and we got somebody here sort of like six months down the line. I diagnosed yeah. Joe six months and he's come in for a cup of coffee with you just to say, look, don't panic, mate. It's not great diagnosis, but, you know. I think you're absolutely right. And... While you were saying that, I thought, well, that's right. But actually, what the doctor ought to be able to do is give you a pack. And in it, it contains yeah. 10 things that you could do. Because I think when you're caring for somebody, there is nothing you can do. That's how you feel. There is nothing mm. I can do about it. Hopeless. No, yeah. no there, are, there, there are 10 things that I can do. Mm. <laughs> now, probably only three or four of them will bear fruit. Mm. Nevertheless you as a carer will feel that you're mm. in some way taking more ownership or able mm. to take more ownership, mm. learning more, mm. phoning people up because yeah. you've got the telephone number, all those kinds of things. Not everyone will want to do that. That's fair enough. But, uh, no, I agree with you. I think no, and that's one of the things that you say you know now as well is that if you were advising carers, particularly family carers, I think you meant, is, you know, look after yourself. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it is no good for the that carer then to say, I'm sorry, I've got no time to look after myself because I've got to care for my loved one. Mm. Because actually, the more rundown you get, the less good your care is going to be. Absolutely. So actually, looking after yourself is an act of love for the person that you're caring yeah, for. Yeah, but guilt comes in again, doesn't it? Because you think, Yeah, oh. yeah. It is, this is a hard thing to say, but it's an indulgence to get get yourself in a position where you feel that dreadful. And you don't think you have the right not to feel dreadful. Yeah. You do have the right. You, you as a carer are doing something quite remarkable in our society. In many ways, ours is a very selfish society. And what you are doing is sacrificing so much of who you are. Mm. Well, if you're going to do that, you've got to be able to find some joy in it somewhere. 
And you've got to spend a bit of time doing that, even if it's allowing yourself to watch one programme an evening on the television without being yeah. interrupted. Yeah, because you're only human, you know. Yeah. You're not, you're not invincible. So no. difficult, so difficult. Well, thank you, Tony. It was lovely chatting to you and sort of um, chewing the cud on dementia, as it were. <laughs> and I think, you know, you and celebrities, with your power of, of the reach you have, it is incredibly powerful. Um, you know, I think the Wests, you know, Timothy West and Prunella you know, you have so much more power than little old me. It's, it's very good of you to be so open. There is a way in which... The people who in this society we call celebrities do have an advantage, or at least mm. we are able to discuss it on a public platform. Yeah. But this is a disease which is totally uninterested in celebrity. Yeah. When I was receiving letters from people saying how powerless they felt in the mm. in the face of the dementia that their loved one had got. I got two from mayors of different towns in mm. the country. I got one from someone who was so high in politics that he was odds-on to be the next prime minister. He didn't ever make it to be prime minister. Blimey. But and he wrote to me and said, you know, even in a position which everyone would think is one of the most powerful positions in the, in the country, I was not able to help my mum with dementia I couldn't mm. find the care that I knew she needed mm. Um, mm, that's telling isn't it I mean it's completely yeah. indiscriminate obviously as everything yeah. medical is but yes that you can't buy your way out of, but as a celebrity you do have the reach to to do what you're doing really to, to, to yeah. raise awareness of, of dementia to Nato on the phone with you on a Monday morning yeah and I'm sorry because <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know you're a bit snuffly this morning as well so thank you very much that's indeed right, yeah. Tony it was really nice talking to you and I've got my dressing gown on and I haven't had a shave. But that's the great thats the great thing about doing things that are just it, just in sound. No one will ever know that. Yeah, you should have said you were all, you know, you were all dressed up in your suit. I'm really disappointed <laughs> now. I thought... <laughs> I've got my DJ on. <laughs> great. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tony. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Well, who knew Baldrick was such a lovely person? I really enjoyed chatting to Tony Robinson, even unshaven in his pyjamas. He was tremendously open and warm, and very shrewd too. I thought that as an actor, his description of a person with dementia as someone permanently struggling to work out the new world in which they'd found themselves, with all the fear this entails, while also wanting to outwit the demon dementia, was very perceptive. And of course, he's seen so much of dementia the way that his young son could laugh with his granddad about the car registration, about his mum never relinquishing her emotions, about the never-ending grief and guilt, the relief when the end finally comes, and the poignancy of his own soaring success as his dad was failing. He's lived it all and he knows what it means. He's passionate too about the way we currently perceive and treat carers and older people. In a hundred years, we'll view how we treated the elderly today in the same way as we now regard the period of child labour or women not having the vote. What an interesting observation, and what a thoughtful and compassionate man Sir Tony Robinson is. A sheer joy to talk to. You can watch Joe's Journey on YouTube. And by the way, Lewis Hamilton had just won the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix when Tony and I spoke. But of course, they went on somewhat controversially to narrowly miss out on the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, thereby losing his chance of a record eighth world title. And that's it for another season of Well, I Know Now. 
All that's left for me to do is put away my mic for a month or two, try to remember where I put the Christmas tree stand, and wish you all the very best for this festive season. I'll be back in 2022 with more diverse, witty and wonderful guests. Until then, may you and your families have a peaceful break and a happy, healthy and fulfilling new year. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.